Lend us your ears, a podcast from Bard and the Botanics. Episode two, I must begin with rudiments of art. Where to start? Hi, I'm Gordon Barr. I'm the Artistic Director of Bard and the Botanics. And I'm Jennifer Dick and I am the Associate Director. And over the next few weeks of the podcast, we're going to be looking at the process that Bard and the Botanics takes from page to stage, from the choice of scripts for each summer season, right through to what it's like to step out on stage in front of an audience and perform at uh, Bard and the Botanics. So this week's episode, uh, we're going to be looking at the the choices that Jen and I have to make uh, as we're planning each summer season. We're going to be looking at how we choose the plays that we're going to stage, uh, how we tackle the scripts, right through to how we decide who's going to be in them. Yeah, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to talk to some of the key artists in a bit more detail. So we'll be talking to our head of design, we'll be talking to the stage management team, we'll be talking to the actors. And also we'd like to hear from you. If you want to let us know if there's any questions that you've got for us, please do let us know. You can leave comments on the Podbean page. Um, and you can also find us on social media, so you can send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, and we will try to respond to those questions. One of the questions that we have been asked quite a lot over the years is, how do you choose which plays you're going to do? And the answer I tend to always give is that we decide which plays we want to do. <laughs> they, uh... Yeah, that's that's the basic first question that we ask each other is, what do you want to do next? Um, this picks up on something that I mentioned briefly last week, is that we strongly believe you make better art if you're doing something that makes you happy, that makes you excited and passionate. So the choice of plays always has to begin with what do we personally want to do. And it's all kinds of different things can make you want to do a particular play at a particular time. Uh, it might be that uh, you have a key casting in mind you want to do a particular play with a particular actor. It may be that they feel particularly apt for a moment in time. It feels like the right year to do a particular story. We'll talk about all of this in a bit more detail. And uh, sometimes it's as simple as I haven't had a chance to do that one yet. Yeah, for sure. I'm always thinking, of what's one that I haven't done? I'm excited to try new things, to keep trying new things and pushing myself um, and challenging myself. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always looking at what are the titles that I haven't had a crack at yet. Uh, so that is that's a big part of the decision. Something else that has come up, I think, recently, because we have expanded our programme in recent years beyond Shakespeare, is is why, first of all, just Shakespeare and then why expand? Uh, yeah, to answer the first question, why why is it always Shakespeare? Because we are a Shakespeare company. That's what we were established as. Um, and there are 38 plays, slightly less or more, depending on what you admit to the canon of his plays, but around about that number of plays. So, you know, that's when we started off doing two, maybe three titles a year. You know, it was taking us a fair while to get through those. There were plenty of plays still to do. Uh, from the official Shakespearean canon. The longer this season's been going on, uh, the longer that I've been directing for it, the longer that you've been directing for it, Jen, the number of titles that we haven't done is getting less and less. The number of plays that we've done at multitudinous times is getting less and less, uh, or getting more and more that way around, I think. <laughs> um, so we want to be continually looking for new ways to entertain our audiences, new ways to introduce different stories to our audiences. Um, and we started a few years ago in that process by looking at plays that came from the same time period as Shakespeare was writing it. Um, so a strand of work was introduced called Writing the Renaissance that gave us the opportunity to, yeah, explore some of the writers that were writing at the same time as Shakespeare, before or slightly after, uh, were influenced by or were an influence on Shakespeare. So there was a clear link for 
audiences and for us as a theatre company between what we have been doing and what we're doing. So we started that strand of work with Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. We uh, we also did Marlowe's Edward II. We did some work with John Fletcher's sequel to The Taming of the Shrew, The Tamer Tamed. Um, so lots of things. Uh, there's still, though, I think, Shakespeare still remains the core of the work because we're not done with the things we want to say. Absolutely. Uh, and as time develops and as the company develops and as the world develops, new light gets thrown on these plays all the time. Absolutely. And I think new light gets thrown on the plays for us as well. Again, just to touch on something that I mentioned last week, when I returned to a text that I think I know really well. The wonder of Shakespeare is that you will often find something completely new. I'll give you an example. There's a, a speech that Gordon and I both don't really love in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a play that we both do love, but there's a speech of Titania's that we call the Weather Report. Ah, uh, yes. Where she she's basically upbraiding Oberon because their argument has basically turned the weather crazy and stormy and we both have struggled with this speech we find it quite dense it's the the sentence structure is a bit complex and it's well, it, quite... it doesn't because it goes on for so long and it's a list of the different aspects of the environment that have been impacted by their argument it doesn't come from character there's no narrative progression in the speech it's just a description a list of of weathers which makes it difficult to make theatrically vibrant yes but just the other week i was watching a version where someone looked at it from the perspective of an expression of the effects of climate change and it suddenly kind of came alive to me in a way that it hadn't before and i suddenly thought oh that's an interesting approach to that and they this performer has managed to make me think about that aspect from a speech that i had never before felt illuminated by all of which is a, is a long way of saying I think there will always be new things to discover in the texts of Shakespeare and that's why we as a company keep returning and that's why I think humanity keeps returning to Shakespeare. Yeah I mean I started directing for this company when I was in my early 20s I am now in my early very early 40s <laughs> I, I'm different so my connection to the plays is different. For me, I, I think the one that was most interesting is, is Hamlet from that point of view. Hamlet is your favourite play in the entire world. Yeah, um, between that... pretty up there. Be between that and Richard II, I would say. The, uh, and you have always loved that story, that character. I had never really had a... I could never make that personal connection to Hamlet. I could appreciate it, but not love it. Uh, and then a few years ago, I, I lost my father. <laughs> so it does, you could sound like he's just wandering around Asda somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, could Gordon's father please come to the customer service desk? Uh, no, I, sadly, my father passed away. And that gives you a change of perspective uh, on a story where a character that I had struggled with because there was an element in my head of, get over yourself and get on with it, I suddenly could understand that the depression, the deep depression, the deep nihilism that comes with grief, I could understand grief better. Um, and suddenly I had a way into that play. So, so turning that around, how do we choose the plays each year? Yeah, we, as much as we can, and I think we've actually always managed this, we choose the titles that we are passionate about and feel like we've got something to say. Uh, we have programmed plays for a season before and then me I think more than you possibly a couple of months later have gone this is uh, it's not the right play for me I don't have anything to do with this I'm not excited by it I'm working on it it's not I'm not getting any ideas by it we should leave it and there, I think there is something to be said for that we'll move on in a minute to talk about the process of how we adapt the scripts for performance but there is something to be said for sitting down with the script spending time with it and then honestly saying actually I thought I, I thought I had a handle on this but I'm not there yet so let's let me do something else um, and that has happened you know a few times we yeah. um I mean it actually happens to me with every play that I choose to direct <laughs> in every year uh, but sometimes you just have to work through that and then sometimes you have to go no actually this is not the right play for me at this time I don't yeah. have anything I want to say yeah. with it and you know the last thing we want to do 
as a company um is put on a play because it's time it's that play's turn and that's not going to be any exciting for anyone which leads me just to a final thing about the 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 shakespeare question which is we did used to have this goal of of completing the canon and i think we'd put a time limit on it i think remember we'd said we wanted to have staged every play that shakespeare wrote by 2025 yeah um which i mean is still it's possible but we won't we won't i don't think we'll reach that target we've got eight left to do um and i think the thing that we realized is that there are maybe a couple that we don't necessarily want to do but if the audience tells us they want it then we will figure it out or if a, an artist comes to us with, yeah, a, with a great with a idea. Passionate idea about that title yeah um i mean i think yeah there's there's eight titles that we've never staged at Bard and the botanics which i'm going to reel off now uh we have never staged troilus and cressida two gentlemen of verona the two noble kinsmen all's well ends well mary wives of windsor king john henry the eighth and cymbeline now, some of those titles, you and I are itching to get our hands on. Yeah, we're on. desperate we to do We have plans to, to do them uh, when it's the right season for them. But some of them, and I think both you and I did not know the two noble kinsmen very well. And both of us have encountered a version of it in recent months. It's, and come away going... It's twaddle. Oh, dear, it's twaddle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one that is accepted that Shakespeare wrote in conjunction with John Fletcher or contributed material to... And yeah, I just can't see what the point of it is. Me neither. I can't see what the point, I can't see what it's about. I don't know what the place, I understand what the story is. It's not a particularly interesting story, but I don't know why that story needs to be told. And both of us sat down and had a conversation about actually, maybe it's all right if we never stage the two noble kinsmen. Yeah, because what that would do, we would be sacrificing one of our kind of, central principles which is this thing about the passion for the work in order to achieve this goal of completing the canon and and i think we both in our older age have decided that that's not a sacrifice we're willing to make we would rather we would rather do projects that we are passionate about than than tick off everything on the checklist because that's something that you do yeah we've always approached the production of shakespeare with a viewpoint and if that viewpoint ends up being that we don't like that play, then we won't stage it. It's not to say there'll never be a production of that play at Barton and Botanics, but it's unlikely to be directed by you or me. <laughs> at the moment, first time. At the moment. I think there's, moving on from this a little bit, there's the next part of how we choose the plays is about the season as a whole, because um, we're not just deciding oh I want to put that play on what we are doing is putting a season of work together um, and there is a balancing act that that we have to perform um, which is the age-old question of art versus commerce because we are mainly an unfunded theatre company we very rarely um, get any form of public subsidy we rely in great part on box office to keep the company going so we have to balance whether we think something is going to be commercially successful, attract a big audience, against the things that we want to do, if you like, just for the art's sake. And that is a bit of a balancing act. And sometimes you have to... I hate the phrase one for them and one for you, but it's kind of that. Except that the proviso is, even within the art for commerce debate, we're still never going to do something just because it'll bring an audience in. We're still going to, even if we're choosing something that we know is a very popular title, we're going to do it because we've got a good idea for doing that. Play. Yes, yes. The art versus commerce uh, argument is something that I think most classical theatre companies and most Shakespeare-based theatre companies face. You know, you, you look at the seasons of work coming out of the Globe Theatre in London or the Royal Shakespeare Company. There's definitely, there are more Romeo and Juliet's and Macbeth's coming out of both of those major heavily, I was going to say both heavily subsidised. The, the Globe is not a subsidised theatre. But those major, major cultural institutions, they still need to bring out the titles that are the, the most popular. We always talk about there's the big three which we are guaranteed an audience for uh, whenever you stage them. Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and A Midsummer Night's Dream. They are popular with audiences. 
The, uh, and for good reason. Those are amazing yeah. plays. Really wonderful plays. The, uh, and they are. They, they are the plays that we've staged the most. That, along with Much Ado About Nothing, I think. I mean, something like The Dreams had five separate productions of Bar the Botanics. Romeo and Juliet has had four. Much Ado About Nothing's had four. I think Macbeth has had four as well. Um, so there's definitely... Those plays come round more often. As Jen says, they come round when one of us has an idea for them but they also when you stage one of those titles you kind of buy yourself the ability to put on a title that's not so well known yeah to program timing of athens yeah which we did for the first time a couple of years ago and i think it was the first professional scottish production that we could find a record of i mean actually that that brings up something that made a huge difference to the programming of the season um, in 2009 was the first time, was the introduction of Kibble Palace productions. Which, if you don't know Bard in the Botanics, the Kibble Palace is a beautiful, restored Victorian glass house, which allows us to present smaller scale studio productions, basically. The audience seats between 70 and 80 people, and we basically do them in traverse. And there's, there's a long corridor in the Kibble that... Um, connect two big domes um, and we're able to do this little traverse have this little by which traverse. you mean the audience are on two sides on either side yes exactly uh, of the performance they were introduced uh, in order to be able to do titles that wouldn't necessarily fill out a full lawn uh, of audience members but also to give us the freedom to play around with those plays a little bit more um, adapt them a little bit more exp- explore them from different angles uh, and they've proven hugely successful it may just be because there's a roof but they've become very popular but allowed us to make the plays that are less well known we this is the danger of it naming anything in the very first time that we did a kibble palace production where i did a production of richard the third with three actors uh, i jokingly called it the lesser spotted shakespeare and that has stuck forever they are the lesser spotted shakespeare's and they uh, give us a platform in which to stage Timon of Athens, in which to stage Coriolanus, in which to stage Pericles. Pericles. These these plays that uh, are not necessarily known enough to attract a large audience, but are really interesting for us to do as artists. Um, and I think we now we're very lucky in that we have quite a loyal and adventurous Kibble Palace audience, people who will come I know there are people who come specifically when they go, oh, I've not seen that one. I'm excited to see a new one. There are certainly people, I think, who only come to the kibble because it's got a roof. Yes. Um, and the seats are slightly more comfortable. Well, it depends. Oh, it depends some what kind bring, of seats you some bring. Some people bring their own very comfortable chairs to uh, the outdoor shows. So, yeah, the, the introduction of the shows in the kibble palace allowed us to broaden the repertoire uh, over the last 10, 12 years. Uh, and, and has helped with that balancing act between art and commerce very much so very very much so so something else we think about is is kind of theming the season um this is something i don't know how long it's been that we've been giving the season a title 2012 was the first first time just looking for something that draws all of the plays together now i'm going to be honest and tell you that sometimes the theme comes before and sometimes the theme comes after we've picked the plays. sometimes we just pick the plays and go what is the thing that um draws these plays together? What do these plays have in common? And but often we discover that they do have things in common and it's and it it's just to do with how we're feeling at the time. It might be to do with the political climate or it might be to do with how we're personally feeling that the the reason that we've picked these plays does actually appear to have a common thread. And I think the longer we've been going on with this idea of, of giving the season a thematic title uh, we'll always pick out a quote uh, from one of the plays in the season to to kind of encapsulate the overarching theme. And I think the longer that's gone on, the more it's become embedded in the choices and in the, the way that we approach things. You know, I remember thinking that the second season that we themed 2013, which was Othello, Much Ado About Nothing and Julius Caesar. And we call that the edge of war season because all of the plays either took place just before or just after a major conflict, a conflict, a war. It's not the most exciting theme, <laughs> the, uh, but at that stage, that's what we could see that linked the plays. You know, much ado about nothing really has very little to do with war when it all comes down to it. This is true. But it, it provided a link, whereas 
you look at something like 2017, where we staged these headstrong women, where we made a very, very conscious decision that all of the titles, all four titles that season would be headlined by female characters, whether they were originally written that way or not. Um, and we would make a statement about women in classical theatre through that season. Uh, so I think it's become, the, the themes for the season have become more uh, embedded in the choices yeah, the longer that's gone it's more, on. It's more part of the, the decision process. Yeah. I think the, the final part, maybe, of how we choose the plays is that, um, and, and Gordon has alluded to this a wee bit before, is that we do sometimes make choices based on the artist involved. A lot to do with with the actors that we love to work with. We will, Gordon and I will sit possibly over a glass of wine or two and talk about performers and actors that we love and plays that we'd like to do with them, characters that we'd like to see them play. And that will often be the starting inspiration for, for the concept, for want of a better word, of a production will be, oh, I'd love to see such and such play such and such a part. Yeah, and programming-wise, it can be two or three years before that fits with the rest of the work that we're doing that year and that production can start to happen. But yeah, the, the actors that we work with, that we work with regularly, especially our associate artists, you heard from uh, most of them last week, our associate artists are key to the work that we do uh, and their talent is so at the heart of what we produce that of course we're going to go, I want to see Nicole Cooper play this, I want to give Alan Steele the chance to play that. You know, these plays, they have some of the most challenging dramatic roles ever written for actors. It can be very difficult to choose to do a play like Hamlet if you don't know who you want as your Hamlet. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very difficult one to approach if you, if you don't start from the position of I want this actor to play that part. In fact, that that's what last year's season ended up being fully themed around uh, was these, we had four plays with these extraordinary individuals at the heart of them, Hamlet, Richard III, Henry V and Rosalind did as you like it. And we could only choose to do those plays because we were able to secure four of our associate artists, Nicole Cooper, Robert Elkin, Adam Donaldson and Stephanie McGregor, to play those roles. We wanted to showcase those actors and these extraordinary roles. And the whole season uh, was entitled The Muse of Fire season because these characters and these actors playing them were, we both thought, inspirational in their own way. Maybe you don't want to be too inspired by Richard III. <laughs> Not certainly for how you live your life day to day. Perhaps not. With the murdering and the there, child killing and things, but... There is another way that um, casting influences the choice of the play. And this is because of something we call the casting jigsaw. And this is because we work basically in a rep, a repertory system, which means that whilst the first set of plays are running, we are rehearsing the second set of plays and actors will be in at least two productions in the season which means that we have to sit down and make a spreadsheet and figure out how one actor is going to be cast across the season, which means that there are certain combinations of plays that just don't work. For instance, it's very difficult to programme Romeo and Juliet next to King Lear because one is cast mainly with very young performers and one is cast with much more mature performers. So that would be, that would be very difficult to make the casting jigsaw work. So that is a big part of, of how we figure out how the programme's going to fit together. And practically, we don't want to kill our performers. You know, we, yes. we spoke last week about the, the relentless nature of putting the season together. Uh, you know, we only have three to three and a half weeks rehearsal for each production. So ideally, you're looking, if somebody has a stonkingly huge role like Richard III, you don't want to give them another stonkingly huge role in the other half of the season because apart from anything else, they can't they can't retain that many lines in their head. So you're trying to find a balance of a major role versus a supporting role so that it's not like it's their show off, but it's their chance to breathe. The, the, the pressure isn't on any one individual across the entire season. So these are all the kind of things that we need to think about. And um, when we put that all together, we end up with a season. 
so we've reached the point where we've chosen the programme of plays that we want to produce. Uh, and now you and I as directors will start to look at the individual plays uh, and start to dig a little bit deeper into what we want to do with those uh, with those stories, with those titles. We create a concept for the production, so to speak. Uh, although I'm, I'm wary of the term concept because I think there is a, rightly, I think there is a suspicion of concept Shakespeare. The idea that a director will have this vision, this idea that utterly overtakes the play um, and the performances and the writing and just ends up a big pretentious mess. Yeah, I think I think that absolutely is a danger. So I think what we always try to do is find finding the concept is about finding what is our own personal hook into the production. What is the thing about it that we think is important or that we love or that we think would be really theatrically interesting. And and those ideas can come from anywhere. Sometimes they come from reading the play, usually. Um, but they can also come from really kind of off the wall, odd places. I think we've both had inspirations from all sorts of, of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think back to one of my very first productions for Barden the Botanics, which was the musical version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Love, love, love. Uh, which has had three different incarnations over the years. 2003, it was staged inside the Cabo Palace. 2004, it was an outdoor production uh 2011 it returned under a canopy but all with the same overarching concept different music each time different songs but the same overarching concept of it was set in a 1920s jazz club uh where puck was the master of ceremonies uh where hippolyta was the kind of burlesque-esque star of the nightclub about to head off and marry nobility big prince and the showgirl and where that concept came from, it didn't, I was going to say it didn't come from reading the text. Of course it did. But, you know, you're reading a text about a wood outside of Athens. You're not reading a text about a 1920s burlesque jazz club. But it actually came from watching extras on the DVD of Moulin Rouge. I mean, it's essentially my attempt just to get to direct Moulin Rouge. <laughs> uh, particularly the last time we did it where it became songs from all through the generations. But I was watching an interview with Nicole Kidman uh, about Moulin Rouge and she was talking about the original nightclub itself, the Moulin Rouge, and how it was a place where you could go for a night and you could forget who you were meant to be in the real world and indulge your fantasies, indulge yourself in whatever you wanted that night to become. So that's exactly what happens to the characters in A Midsummer Night's Dream. When they go into the woods over the course of that night, something is released in them. Something is made free. They're allowed to explore their uh, their own sexual fantasies as much as anything else, romantic fantasies. Uh, so suddenly the world of this illicit nightclub the Moulin Rouge and the world of a Midsummer Night's Dream didn't seem so far apart. Uh, and the idea of it being a musical, apart from the fact that I am just desperate to direct a musical uh, at all times in my life, I just am <laughs> a heartbeat away from directing a musical. The core concept of musicals is this idea that when you can no longer speak your feelings, you can no longer express your feelings in words, you break into song. And so, again, this idea that particularly the the potion that, that comes from the flower that Puck puts onto people's eyes in the course of the story of Midsummer Night's Dream, the idea that this releases something from within them and that is expressed in song, that all, that all matched up. And of course, then it leads on into being an absolute camp extravaganza of nonsense, the, uh, as it should do, as I think Midsummer Night's Dream is. Uh, I'm not a great fan of a dark production of Midsummer Night's Dream. I don't think the text can hold that interpretation up. I think it is a gloriously funny, a gloriously sexy, a gloriously ridiculous story. And suddenly, by placing all these characters, finding themselves in a musical, I seemed to find a concept that matched. Quite an extreme concept, but one that was true to what I felt was the spirit of the play as written. Absolutely. I think I think that's always what we're trying to do with our takes on the plays 
is to find a way of expressing what we think the essence of the play is. That's certainly how I've approached um, Henry V, which I've directed a couple of times now. I did one large, very large outdoor production. And then just last year, I did a much smaller production in the Kibble Palace. And through both of those, I've been exploring what I think that play is about. And the thing I think most of all is that that play is about theatre. That play is about theatre and it's about imagination. That's something that I keep coming back to. So the first time round, I remember it. I was on a train with Gordon and just kind of spitballing ideas and suddenly had this idea of a history teacher trying to make the history of Henry V come to life for their class and and how might that how might that work and slowly that idea kind of evolved into the idea of the first production which was we had um created an outdoor school fete at which the school pupils and staff were going to perform a production of Henry V as a kind of pageant and then it expanded even further because the production was going to happen in 2014, which was the 100-year anniversary of the start of World War One. So then it became that, that that would be the best time to set the production. And then that started to have lots of resonances because I think something else that I think is very strong in Henry V is, is quite an anti-war message, or at least an examination of the complexities and the sacrifices inherent I was going to say, the war. human cost of the, war. The human cost of war, um, I think, is, is very strongly explored. And so that, that concept kind of had a little seed in my feelings about the essence of the play being about theatre um, and then grew as other influences came in. And then when I was lucky enough to have the chance to come back to the show just last year... I was thinking about that, that I still, those things I feel, felt felt and feel about that play still hold true. And how could I do that with a smaller cast in, in, in a much more kind of intimate setting in the Kibble Palace? Because I think it's a lot about play as well. Play as in children playing and play as in play acting. And I thought back to one of my old favourites, Dennis Potter. I've been, I've been quite heavily influenced by the work of Dennis Potter which I don't know. I think I just watched a lot of it when I was a teenager. I don't know if that's healthy, but I but I certainly seem to have done. And I remembered this uh, film that he made called Blue Remembered Hills, where it's a group of adult actors playing young children, maybe of about eight or nine, playing together. And their play starts out quite benign and then goes to a very dark place. And that felt to me a very appropriate image for but Henry V. They're playing starts to echo the difficulties and the harshness of the adult world exactly. that, they, that they are exposed to and then that gets played out in the power structures and the relationships in their in their play in Blue Remembered Hills and as you say that kind of that fed into Henry V. Yeah so that was the 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 concept the take if you like um so then I I had to cast six actors who were willing to play as children and we decided that the 1940s would be a really good um, setting for that especially when I started to look into the ideas around the Laurence Olivier film and finding out that the Olivier film was part funded by the British government as a bit of propaganda um, and we so we started to look into all the things that that implies and all of the resonances that has with the play and all of that then fed into the framework, the concept of the show. I think it's important as we discuss this to say that this is not a quick process, that Gordon and I will be choosing plays a year, possibly two years in advance of producing them. And Yeah, from... we're sitting here in July 2020 and we are already talking about the plays, the concepts, the ideas that will inform our 2021 season. In fact, we have been for some months already. Yes, exactly. So this process that we're talking about of these ideas developing happens over months and months and sometimes years. Gordon, do you want to talk about another production? No, another? I was going to make you actually because oh. I want because you have brought up Dennis Potter as an influence on Henry V. He's influenced another one of your shows that I think kind of where the, the concept flushed out something true and actually kind of 
links up to both what we were saying about Henry V and Midsummer Night's Dream. So I want you to talk a little bit about uh, the production of Twelfth Night that you created for 2016. Yes, yeah, so Dennis Dennis Potter, again, was, was part of the idea for that show. I knew I was going to do Twelfth Night, um, and I had been thinking a lot about, again, what is that play about? For me, that play begins in a place of melancholy. It begins in a place of grief, of sadness. There's a lot of loss. Stasis. Everything's yeah. kind of stuck at the beginning of Twelfth Night. Everyone is kind of stuck in a in a holding pattern. But then what happens through the course of the play, for me, it's like spring. It's like everything coming into bloom, everyone moving into the colours of life, discovering love, discovering happiness, discovering joy. Um, which is one of the reasons that I really love that play. I think it has it has much in it that's about the redemptive power of love and the redemptive power of humour and silliness. And so I was thinking about that and also thinking about the fact that it's a very musical play, that Shakespeare has written in a lot of songs. There are songs um, that Feste the Clown sings all the way through. And so I knew that I wanted the production to be very musical and this is where a practical consideration crept in because we have discovered it's very difficult to do um, full-on music, live produced music outdoors. We can do, we, we, we've got a sound system, we can play recorded music, but in, in terms of producing music in the shows, that's quite difficult because of the weather. Yes, uh, musical instruments are precious. They are expensive, they are precious, and to send them out into the elements... Um, and to ask musicians or actors to use instruments that could get damaged, that's something we're not comfortable with. So I was trying to think, how can, can we can we have music? We need to have music and I want the people, the characters to be musical and to be enjoying music. And then I came across this notion, which was the marriage of two things. It was, I'm not going to lie had a little bit to do with RuPaul's Drag Race. It was... Lip sync for your life. There was a little bit of lip syncing for your life in there. But then it was also because I remembered the Dennis Potter films where the characters would burst into song, but they would be lip syncing to um, what whatever, a 1920s jazz track. Classics like the TV series like The Singing Detective yeah, or Pen Pennies from Heaven. Pennies from Heaven, these sorts of things. And so I went back and I kind of watched some of those clips and I thought, you know, this might work. It was an absolutely crazy notion. And I was very lucky that the cast were willing to throw themselves into. I think we ended up with 12 lip synced musical numbers using 1960s pop tunes because that was the era that I went for. And again, that the decision of the era that the show was set in came from this my notion of the theme of the play about kind of rebirth and flowering. So I was looking at the 60s as a time when when people people's lives exploded into colour and freedom and exploration and all of those aspects of the 60s that I thought worked worked really nicely. So again, a whole heap of different influences feeding into the concept for that show. So it's interesting that We've talked kind of about three different productions so far. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream set in the 20s. Uh, Henry V, one set during the First World War, one during the Second World War. And Twelfth Night in the 60s. And actually, most of our shows are more likely to be set in contemporary times. But uh, there is something really nice about looking back over the 20th century, particularly, and the resonances uh, that shows set in those time periods can bring with them. So I've done three different productions of The Taming of the Shrew uh, for Buying the Botanics. I will not be doing another one uh, of the original play as it stands because I think it is a play which endorses misogyny. It's not something that I think Shakespeare does across his work, but I think that play does. Um, and I'm not interested in trying to argue for that play. The last time I did it, uh, it was set in the 1950s and to try to combat that inherent misogyny, I say misogyny, it's worse than misogyny, it endorses spousal abuse. Yeah, that's absolutely what it does. Uh, because Petruccio wins. He starves his wife, he emotionally abuses her, he gaslights her, he does horrendous things to her and it works. In the play as written, it works. She 
capitulates to him. Now, you've played the role of Kate for me, and we navigated a way through that journey that you felt reasonably comfortable with as an actor. Yes, I did. I felt like I I found a way through her that was fairly empowered. But I'm I'm in agreement with Gordon that that we won't do that play as it's originally written again. Part of the reason I wanted to play it was because I I kind of was incredibly repulsed by the text and and thought oh, this is an interesting challenge because I did I've always liked Kate as a character. I find her just really interesting and really individual. What I do really strongly remember though is really struggling with um the section I think it's act 4 when they go back to Patricio's house after they've been married and that that section that Gordon's talking about which is spousal abuse happens and the awful thing about it is that Kate says not one word in that entire act she sits in silence while her husband treats her that way and that I I really strongly remember that the horrible feeling of playing that section and even although I think we managed to find a more empowered ending to the play there's no denying that that's what happens yeah uh, and so coming back to it, that was back in 2009, and I came back to it in 2017 as part of the These Headstrong Women season, because it, there's not a more headstrong woman in, in Shakespeare than Kate, at least initially. Uh, and in fact, These Headstrong Women is a quote from True. But coming back to the play, I wanted to come back to it because I was unsatisfied with kind of letting the play away with what it was. I wanted to do, I wanted to do something for Kate. Uh, and I read John Fletcher's play, The Tamer Tamed, which was written not that long after Shrew, written in the same time period, and is a sequel. Uh, it is, It takes place after Kate has died, some years after the, the original text. Kate has died, Petruccio marries uh, a new wife, uh, and she takes it on herself to tame him and plays tricks on him and refuses to admit his behaviour, the same behaviour that he tried on Kate, and in doing so kind of wins. And I thought it was really interesting that in the time period, in the Renaissance period, back when Shakespeare was writing or not long after, there was somebody already saying, I don't agree with that story. I want to give an alternative to it. And so out of that idea grew this production which brought the two stories together. Instead of Kate dying and it being up to a second wife, to teach Petruccio the error of his ways. I could make a longer, more complex journey for Kate by allowing her to fight back right at the moment at the end of Shrew, uh, where he asks for the, the speech telling uh, women how they should behave towards their husbands. We flipped and we she started to fight back. And what was great was that the other female characters in the play were able to back her up and it became this kind of crusade for these female characters so that kind of that whole concept grew out of a frustration with the original play and then looking at a time when looking for a time period to set at a time when that fighting back was just starting to happen so we took it back to the 1950s back to this time period where the idea of the perfect wife existed um, and we set the whole thing out on a backdrop of real uh, billboard adverts from the 1950s. The repulsive. slogans of which, they are repulsive. repulsive. They are absolutely repulsive. To the point where the, the designer for the show, Julian Argo, asked that she was able to make the posters that formed up the back of the set detachable so that when the sh they were only up for the show because they had context when the show was on, but to sit in the middle of the park with these horrible sexist slogans all day. She was rightly uncomfortable with the idea that we were putting those slogans out into the world. So yeah, Shrew was another quite heavily conceptualized show, but it was but it was an attempt to fight back against something I, I found difficult in the original text. So we've now chosen the programme of plays that we're going to produce. We've decided on the direction that we want to take with individual plays uh, and now it's time to really sit down with the script. That script will have been part of every decision up to this point but now it's time to, to focus on shaping the version of the text that we're going to take into rehearsals um, because I think we again touched on it briefly last week. We do not nor are we interested in doing full text productions. 
I... We've only ever done it once. Have we? We did oh. Comedy of Errors. Yes. In its entirety, because it's very short. Yes, but even then, that was a mistake. I would look <laughs> back and say it was a mistake, because... There were times in rehearsing Comedy of Errors, and you will know because you were on stage for some of these times, we're just trying to find some dramatic life to a twisted piece of Archean wordplay. Took more time than we should have been spending. It was unnecessary. One of my favourite ever rehearsal moments, though, in Comedy of Errors, um, there's a bit of Adriana's text in one of her long speeches. Nikki Cooper was playing Adriana. And there's a bit about gold and glistering. And it's quite a twisted metaphor. And we were we, we spent quite a long time trying to figure it out. And then we pulled out one of the editions of Shakespeare, probably an Arden. And it said about this particular phrase, and it's just said, no scholar has ever been able to satisfactorily explain this phrase. And that's when you take the scissors out. <laughs> if the academics who spend years exploring these texts can't work out anymore what it means or perhaps it's been recorded corruptly the uh, from whatever was originally said on stage you know it's it's okay to edit also you know we perform outdoors in scotland on the west coast of scotland you know if we have plays that last for three and a half hours it's gonna be freezing utterly freezing by the end of the play nobody wants to do that no. Nor do I think it gives you the best chance of telling the stories fully. You know, if you're just, if you try and include everything, then you can kind of lose focus and nothing has significance. So I I think pruning and editing and shaping is, I think it's really important. Yeah, me too. I, I also think it gives you as the director a real sense of ownership over the production you're creating because you have sat down and really got to grips with that script and and become the dramaturg of that um, piece of text. So you have really investigated it and I think that puts you in a stronger position going into rehearsals because you know the text so well. Shall we talk about the nitty gritty of how we actually do that, what the process is? Yes, I'll, I'll, this is going to be thrilling. 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 I'll try and do this really quickly. So what we do, the MIT website has complete texts of every Shakespeare play. So the first thing that you do is you go to the MIT website and you copy and paste the entire script into your own Word document so you have it for yourself. Then Gordon and I will format the scripts so that they are in a particular font and text size. And the reason that we do that is not just because we like the look of the font, it is because we know that if the text is laid out a particular way, we can get an approximation of how long that piece of text is going to last. Just an approximation. So those are the first two things that we do. Downloading the script and formatting it. And then you go into a process of just reading it over and over again. And I don't know about Gordon, but I will probably read a good four or five times before I will even start to think about what I'm cutting. I will start maybe highlighting bits that I think are going to go and making notes in a separate document, but I won't cut anything on the very first time I read it. I think I probably don't read it through. I will read it through that many times before starting to edit, you know, over the period of thinking about a play, but I won't necessarily read it four or five times with that kind of in, in that int intense period because I don't enjoy reading Shakespeare. Um, you know, I think this is something I'm quite happy to admit. I love working on Shakespeare. I don't love sitting down and reading it. I still struggle was sitting down and reading it after 20 years you know it's been my professional life and I still struggle to sit down and read it sometimes I will seek out other ways of experiencing the story I will watch another version that's available or I will listen to another version I, I will try and experience the story that many times but yeah I I struggle to read it whereas I I have a horror of once once I know that I'm going to be doing a particular production, I have a horror of watching other versions just because I'm afraid I'm going to inadvertently steal. Uh, now, let's be honest, I absolutely have stolen things from other productions. Because they just don't do it inadvertently then. <laughs> do it, just do it honestly. Blatantly. They, do it blatantly. They do say good artists borrow great artists steal. Um, but So I get afraid of watching someone else's, which is why I think maybe I spend more time just reading the play as is but then moving from that into highlighting the bits I want to cut with me 
um, especially if it's for the kibble. And let's say there is a different process to a script for the outdoor stage and a script for the kibble. Yeah, the, the script, when you're editing a script for an outdoor production, it is very much editing. We tend to have larger cast sizes, so you, you'll probably conflate a few smaller characters or get rid of a few smaller characters. But, you know, you've mostly got the principal characters that are in the dramatus personae in the cast <laughs> list of the original text. So you're just you're just shaping the the story as is. Whereas when we're in the Kibble Palace, because you're looking at a cast of three or four, sometimes when sometimes we can take that up to six or so, but you are very much making a decision about what aspects of the story you are keeping, what aspects of the story you're telling. Um, and that can change during the process of editing. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I was doing Measure for Measure and I knew I wanted to cut the more comic aspects of the subplot. What I wanted to do in staging that play was look at the horrific abuse of power that comes from this patriarchal system that puts Isabella into such a horrendous situation. So I didn't want, I didn't want the comic lowlifes. Um, I wanted to make it a streamlined drama about abuse of power um, and gendered abuse of power. So I kind of initially started off going, right, which, who, which characters are essential to that storyline within it? The Duke, Angelo, Isabella, um, Claudio, who is becoming Claudia in this version. Then there were some characters that I decided were needed for the passage of information. Lucio. Mariana and Aeschylus and as I worked on the script more and more and as I refined the story that I was telling through this text two characters disappeared two characters weren't necessary there was a much more interesting dilemma much less of a kind of oh isn't it lucky we just find this ex-girlfriend of Angelo's oh that's handy there was a much more thorny dilemma to be had by making one of the other characters go through the same part of the storyline that Mariana originally did um, and so even though actors have been cast with Lucio and Mariana as part of their line of roles, they weren't dropped from the show. They were just asked to to only do like two characters instead of three, which they were quite happy to do. But that's that that's the bigger changes that happen when you're working on editing a Kibble Palace show. Yes, I had a similar experience when I was um, adapting the script of Dr. Faustus which I knew very early on I was going to turn into a three-hander, which, if you know the original story, it has a cast of millions. It spans decades. It spans decades. And, and, and travels the world. And they all... and But there's, there's characters that appear for, like, three lines or whatever. So when I sat down with the script, I, I really had to think really carefully about what I was going to keep, what was important. And that's also not just a process of editing, as Gordon says, that... That in some cases was about taking whole scenes out and and reordering the scenes. The the difficult thing about Faustus as well is that there are two different texts. There are two different printed texts. Most editions of Marlowe's Faustus will give you both versions, but they've got different scenes in. I actually quite enjoyed that because I meant it felt to me that then I really did have license to create the play that I wanted out of the two different texts because there wasn't one definitive version of that play. Yeah, so I felt like I had a lot of freedom, but I was thinking in my head, right, I'm going. I'm doing this with three actors. I'm going to have Faustus, I'm going to have a good angel, and I'm going to have Mephistopheles. And those are the characters you have. How are you going to create the story? I think it's really interesting with those cable adaptations. We were writing about them recently for something else. And you suggested calling them radical interpretations. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'd call them radical. They are. They're not in the context of global Shakespeare. When you look at the work that's been done across Europe on Shakespeare, they are much freer with using his stories, his language, his characters, but shaping them into their own dynamic productions. There is a sense that in the United Kingdom, there is an over-reverence, perhaps. That's not an actual word, but the, yeah. the spirit of it. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I would say that necessarily about Scotland. I think the people that produce, a lot of the people that produce productions of Shakespeare in Scotland allow themselves to get a bit more radical. I'm not sure that I would agree with that, <laughs> but that's a conversation for another time. Controversial. 
yeah, it's just as we sit talking about them and I go, yeah, and we just cut their character and we made them have that journey. And I'm like, actually, there are people who work on Shakespeare who would clutch their pearls at the very notion. And you think, oh, no, in the 21st century, no, nobody really thinks. But I think there still are. Like, it is still quite radical to adapt and to that extent, which I find exciting. Me too. I, I think it's exciting. And I think... I hope that our audiences come and they don't feel shortchanged by those adaptations. They still feel like they're watching Shakespeare's play. Yeah, the essence of that play. Yeah. I just want to throw in something really quickly, just to say that we are able to have this radical approach because Shakespeare has been dead for 400 years and the plays are long out of copyright. But also because, as we mentioned last week, we think they are plays that stand interpretation. We would never behave in that way if we were working on a piece of new writing with a living playwright. You know, there, no, there would no. be that would be that's a completely different thing. We feel like there is license and there is room to approach this adaptation quite radically. And I think particularly because it's Shakespeare, you know, so there is an argument there going, well, you wouldn't work that way with a living writer or a writer whose work is still in copyright. Why do you think you have the right to do that just because Shakespeare's been dead for several centuries? Yes, he's been dead for several centuries and he's as celebrated and as produced as he ever was, more so, you know. He's probably, I think, possibly the most produced playwright in the world. I think that's probably fair to say. So if you don't like what we're doing with it, there'll be another version of it round the corner. You know, I don't think we're pillaging his work for it never to see the light of day again. You know, it's it's it's, it's his enduring popularity that kind of gives us the license to, to play with his text because somebody else will be doing it more traditionally in six months' time. So once we've done that with the script, once we have done all the editing and adapting, Gordon and I do a thing that we call the punctuation pass. It is possibly the least favourite part of any process. <laughs> and what this is basically, well, I'll, I'll talk about how I do it and then Gordon can I talk about it. I think we do the, we pretty much the same Basically way. the same thing. These days, I will sit with my script. I will have a copy of the first folio open on the internet. For anyone who doesn't know, the first folio are the first recorded published editions of Shakespeare's play. And you can find like facsimiles of these on the internet. And what they have is they have it laid out the way it was originally laid out. They have capital letters where there were capital letters in these in these original editions. It's essentially the first collected works. Yeah. It wasn't every play that we have come to know as being by Shakespeare, but it was a good yeah. chunk of them. And it was put together by two members of his company. acting company. Yes. So kind of the closest we can get to his handwritten texts. So I'll have one of those open and I will also have a penguin because for me, the penguin is is the easiest, most accessible edition. So it really sounds like you just have a penguin oh, next I've to you. I have a little penguin. Because they're very cute animals, why so wouldn't you? A penguin edition of the play that I'm working on. And I also find it the closest, the closest to the folio. And what I will do is I will go through the script with a fine tooth comb and look at every single punctuation mark in the script and decide, I decide, what is the correct punctuation to be used. Now, the reason I get to make that decision is because nobody knows what Shakespeare's punctuation was because we have no handwritten te texts. We don't know that the folios were right. Yeah, I always argue, I think the first folio was a really interesting tool, but I always argue... You know, people will get hung up on the fact that this word had a capital letter in the first folio. I was like, well, maybe they just run out of smaller, small case T's when they were printing that page up. You know, that's probably not what happened, but we don't know for sure. So it's an interpretation as much as anything yes. else is. So I'm using it as a tool. I do it because when I walk into that rehearsal room, I want to know that script inside out and back to front and I want to have made an informed decision about what every single line means but if an actor comes up to me and says you've got a full stop here but I think this is a continuation can I change it to a comma I'm going to go absolutely go for your life yeah I mean by spending that much time in the punctuation I do it very similar to you I think I, I probably have even more published editions uh, open or I think we both do sometimes 
uh, and compare between all of them. But by making choices, what we're providing our actors with is a kind of a roadmap of sense through the text in the way that we believe the sense of the text flows. As you say, that then becomes open to interpretation in the same way that we've interpreted by making choices about the punctuation. Yeah. But well, we're, 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 giving a, we're giving a script to an actor that we have considered every aspect of and are willing to enter into discussion about those choices. Just to illustrate how difficult this can be, when I was preparing my script for Hamlet, which I did in 2011, um, I did my punctuation pass with five different editions of that play. And there were points when there were five different punctuation marks in uh, around one particular moment in that and I had to really stop and think okay what what do I think is the best punctuation for this moment because punctuation does change meaning something else I'll just bring up really uh, briefly as an illustration of why this is important is exclamation marks right lots of modern editions will be full of exclamation marks and an exclamation mark is a very aggressive form of punctuation. Think about it if you're an actor and you're reading a bit of text and it's got an exclamation mark at the end. That's kind of the text telling you how to deliver that line. Whereas there might be lots of other interpretations. If you take that exclamation mark away and change it to a full stop, then that kind of actually opens up the, the choices for interpretation. So I'm always very careful with things, with those aggressive forms of punctuation to leave the script open to interpretation by an actor. And that's something else I'm thinking about when I'm doing that punctuation pass. Yeah, and I think the whole thing about that, uh, about paying that much attention to punctuation, I say it gives a roadmap of sense. It means that you and I have thought about the meaning of every single word and every single line. It also gives a, a shape of rhythm, you know, a full stop. You you take more of a breath after a full stop than you will after a comma. So you're you're kind of shaping a rhythm that you believe matches the rhythm of the original text. And all of that is to give our actors, when they receive the script, a shape to begin with. And then the discussion begins in rehearsals, as you say. And something else to finally say about script preparation is that the script is only ever the beginning when you go into rehearsals. My scripts will quite often change in rehearsals. I have been known to redistribute lines to decide, actually, I think it'd be better if that character says that line or we don't need that line. In fact, something that definitely happens in all of our rehearsals is that lines will be cut in rehearsals. You'll go, oh, actually, we don't need that. Actually, you do more of the cutting. Things tend to get out of back in in my rehearsal room. <laughs> the, uh, but you're very good at keeping on cutting it down and going, we'll do it with a look instead. <laughs> But yeah, so that, that initial script that we've created is a draft and will be different to the script that finally gets up on stage at the end of the rehearsal yeah. process. And I think that happens more, the more we adapt it or the more that you're shifting a viewpoint in text, the more that shaping will carry on in the room. And again, I don't think we're going to do that very much with the closet scene between Hamlet and Gertrude in Hamlet. That's a pretty damn well-written scene you're not going to mess around with that a huge amount. But I look back to last summer and I was doing As You Like It. And we had reinterpreted the character of Audrey, who has a handful of lines in the original. She's there to be a kind of country bumpkin foil to Touchstone the Clown. We turned her into Andre. We'd expanded the character. And we'd made this really touching relationship and, and a developing relationship of this country farmer, Andre, and this sophisticated um, kind of city guy touchstone learning to respect each other and so in rehearsals we kept having to return to those scenes and reshape them and go well actually what have you said that line instead of me or what if we moved that section earlier and that was because we were reinterpreting a character and a relationship that is sketchy on the page and is only there for comic relief so if you can do something if you can play around with that and use the original text but shape it to add depth and character and heart, I think that's got to be worth it. So we've chosen the plays, we've developed our concepts, we've edited and shaped the scripts that we're going to take into the rehearsal room. The next stage of the process is visualising how those plays will look 
on the stage and that's when we bring in our designers um, so next week's episode we're going to be talking to our head of design of the mechanics Karis Hobbs uh, about what are the particular challenges and rewards of designing Shakespeare This is a difficult time for theatres and theatre companies around the world, and Barton the Botanics is no exception. We are working incredibly hard to ensure that we will be returning in 2021 for the company's 20th anniversary season. But if you'd like to support us and help us make sure that we can be there, please visit our website at www.bardenthebotanics.co.uk and donate to our crowdfunder fundraising campaign that will ensure the survival of Bard and the Botanics for years to come. Lend Us Your Ears is a Bard and the Botanics production. It is produced by Gordon Barr and Jennifer Dick with production support from Sam Ramsey and it is edited by Jennifer Dick. And that suddenly struck me as that is what happens to the characters in A Midsummer Night's Dream. When they go into the woods, something is released in them um, or imposed on them by the the love juice that comes from uh, Oberon and Puck, the flower that they... <laughs> <laughs> the love juice... <laughs>